Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Would you go ahead and stand with me just to honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, and I'll read down through verse 17. You'll find these similar words in, in your Bible. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, the most important question that you'll ever ask yourself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Lord, I pray that you would give us an understanding of this text, Lord, as we think about this very important question of who your Son, Jesus, is. Lord, your, your word says that unless your spirit illuminates your word in our hearts and minds, we'll never grasp the significance of it. We'll never grasp the true meaning of it. And so, Lord, give us now spiritual eyes that we might see the truthfulness of your word. Lord, not so that we could just say that we understand something, but, Lord, so that we could be changed by you. So, Lord, would you come and would you minister in this place? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. This past week, bless you, that's right, we had an awesome time as doing our sports camp. Uh, Jess, you did an outstanding job. Uh, so many of you uh, came out and volunteered your time, and so I'm grateful uh, for you and, and what you did this past week, and there's no way that we could have we could have done it without you. But this past week at sports camp, it wasn't just about going to sports camp, it was about learning about Jesus. And the theme for the week was Jesus in our place, and the kids who were there, we memorized 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, from the uh, easy-to-read version of the Bible. You can find that on your Bible app uh, if you've got one of those. But here's what it is. Just so that the kids can understand it, it says, Christ had no sin, but God made him become sin so that in Christ we could be made right with God. And think about it this way. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, became sin for us that we could be made right with God. The person of Jesus Christ is literally the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is in the series of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, thinking about the foundations of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The first two weeks we really looked at the Bible because the Bible is the foundation of of, of really all the core doctrines, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about us, what we believe about the church. We learn all of those doctrines from what we read in the Scriptures. Uh, but the most important thing that I think we could gather from the Scriptures is revolves around who this person, Jesus Christ, is. And so as we begin to think about Jesus, the single most greatest question we'll ever answer is, who is Jesus? It's the question that Jesus asked his disciples here in Matthew 16, verse 13. It's a question that is still very popular today. If, you, if we were to just take a poll and we were to go around and we were to think about, 
okay, who is Jesus? We would get a, just a, a multitude of answers. And sometimes I'm a big sports fan. Uh, I'm a you know, football fan, college football specifically. I'm a Gamecocks fan, and our arch rival is Clemson Tigers. The only good thing about Clemson is, is they've got a head coach that is a phenomenal Christian. And sometimes they'll interview Dabo Sweeney at the end of a football game, and he'll begin to give Jesus Christ credit for, for his team. ESPN has, has gotten to where when Dabo Sweeney talks about Jesus Christ, they'll censor that. They'll go to a black screen or, or the uh, fuzzy screen or something like that. But now you could talk, you could give credit to the man upstairs. You could say, God is my coach. You could, you could reference God all you want. But if you talk specifically about Jesus Christ, that's not okay. Muslims. Muslims make up a very large percentage of, of the world. They believe that Jesus was a prophet, but he was somewhat, he was less than a prophet to Muhammad. Gandhi, thinking about Hinduism, he said, I cannot ascribe divinity to Jesus. He is as divine as Krishna, Rama, or Muhammad, or Zoroaster. Buddhism would say that Jesus was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Neither Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons would believe that Jesus is God. And then if you were to go around, you were to ask the average person on the street who was Jesus, most of the time you would get an answer like this. Jesus was a good man, he was a good teacher, and we just need to love everybody like Jesus. But now there is a serious flaw with that logic. Jesus Christ did not present himself to be simply a good man or a good teacher. Jesus Christ presented himself as God. And some of you are familiar with the logic of C.S. Lewis here. C.S. Lewis made the argument that if, if Jesus Christ claimed to be God, you cannot then ascribe to him to simply be a good teacher. He said if somebody claims to be God, you don't say they're a good teacher. You say that he's a liar or a lunatic. Some of you have told me this morning, one or two of you, not this morning, but in the past, you're a good preacher. But now if I stood up in here and I said, hey guys, I'm God in the flesh, you wouldn't call me a good preacher, you would call me a heretic and say that I'm a nobody. You, would, you wouldn't even listen to anything else I had to say. And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Jesus Christ said that he was God in the flesh. Therefore, you can't just turn around and say that he's a good teacher. He is either who he said he was, or we have to say that he's a liar or a lunatic. And so today, as we walk through this text, Matthew 16, here's the question we're asking. Who is Jesus? Let's begin with that question. We've spent enough time thinking about Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Hindus. They all have a theory about who Jesus is. It's kind of like what these crowds say here. Some say that he's John the Baptist. Y'all remember John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of Jesus. He, he was beheaded because he told Herod that his, his wife should not have been his wife. He called him out on sexual immorality. And so Herod beheaded John the Baptist. And so some of those guys said that Jesus, we, the crowds are saying that you're John the Baptist. You've been resurrected from the dead. Others believe that you're Elijah, that great prophet who called fire down from heaven. Others believe that you're Jeremiah or one of the the other prophets. But now Jesus gets very specific in verse 15. I'm not concerned so much about what the crowds are saying about me, but guys, I want you to understand. I want you to grasp this. Who do you say that I am? 
And there's two pieces of evidence here in this text between verses 13 and 17 that would point to the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. He didn't claim to be a good teacher. He claimed to be God. But first of all, this text, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, oftentimes, if you're not careful, you'll read that and you'll think on the outside the Son of Man would remind you that he is, he is a human, but it is actually a statement of him saying that he is equal with God. The Son of Man is a reference from a prophecy in the book of Daniel. And Daniel prophesied that the Son of Man would come to the Father, come to, the God, some, come to God, but he would not come from earth, he would come from heaven. He would come from the clouds, he would be given a kingdom, and he would have everlasting dominion. And the text says there in Daniel that all peoples, all names, nations, and all languages would serve him. You see, Jesus, this, this, this son of man could not be an angel. Angels are not given kingdoms. Angels are not given people to worship them. And this has to be referring to a prophecy about the divinity, about the, God, about the Godhead of the son of man. But secondly... When Jesus asks who they think he is, which he's trying to get them to grasp, Peter responds. Now, oftentimes, Peter will stick his foot in his mouth. Now, Peter is the, the disciple that is very vocal about it. In fact, a little bit later in this text, Peter's going to stick his foot in his mouth again. But Peter gets it right this time. He says in verse 16, very specifically, notice just the intentionality of what he's saying. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that, is, that has been promised to come. You are the son of the living God. If Jesus were not these things that Peter is describing to him here, Jesus would have said, no, Peter, you've got it wrong. Uh, no, Peter, I am not this person that you think I am. But instead, Jesus said, now, Peter, you are blessed because you have had this revealed to you. Now consider what he's saying. You're the Messiah. He's the one that would be the one from an, that would have an everlasting kingdom in the line of David. But he also says, now listen to this. You are the Son of God. Have you ever thought about this? Any child that is born to an animal takes upon the nature of his parents. Not, not just in humans, but in, in all of the animal kingdom. If a dog has children, their children are dogs, right? Dogs don't have cats. Y'all agree with me? Cats don't have dogs. If cats have children, they have cats. Fish have fish. Cows have cows. Horses have horses. Donkeys have donkeys. It's just something that is natural in the animal kingdom. If God has a son, what must he be? He must be God himself. Jesus is saying, uh, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Therefore, meaning that his son has to be divine. Both of these points to Jesus being God. And if we had time, we could go and we could look at passages like John 1 that says that Jesus is God. We could look at John 10 where Jesus said that he and the Father are one. We could look at the fact that Jesus forgave sin, something only that God could do. The Bible clearly over and over presents to us that Jesus said and he believed that he was God. Therefore, for you to say that Jesus is a good teacher and not God would not be in the same sentence. He is either God or he has to be a liar. You have to decide for yourself. But let's go a step further. He talks about his mission 
in verse 18. If he is God, why did he come to heaven? Well, look what he says in verse 18. He says, now, Peter, you're, you're, you've been revealed this to him in front of the Father, but now, now you are Peter. In verse 18, he says, now, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the mission of Jesus right there. He is going to build his church. It's the first time that the word church is used in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the church is a group of people. Don't get this idea that the church is the building. Don't get this idea that it's, it's the steeple and the brick and the mortar that make up the building. The church has never been a building. It's always been about a group of people. It's a group of people that although they live in a certain culture, they have been called to live to a different kingdom. The church is made up of people who are willing to submit their lives to the kingly rule of King Jesus. It's made up of people, not just white, black, uh, or Hispanic, but of every tribe, every tongue, every language. It's found throughout the entire scriptures. Like we just read it, uh, or I quoted it from, from Daniel. The Bible speaks in Revelation that there's going to be somebody from every tribe before the throne giving praise to Jesus. That's why we partner in places like Toronto, because Jesus is concerned about the nations. That's why we, we are concerned about uh, the, the solar people. On, the, on uh, the many islands of Indonesia. That's why we go to Haiti. We are concerned about all of the nations, but we spend the bulk of our time and our resources ministering here in a local setting. And so here's his mission. Jesus said, now I'm God. I've, I've come down for a specific reason. What's that reason? Well, I'm going to build my church. Now I'm going to build up these people, people who are going to be called to follow me. And now he made this promise. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here's what that means. He made this promise, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Many of you are worried in this presidential election, but just a promise from King Jesus, it don't matter if Hillary or Donald gets elected, Jesus is still on his throne. He is control and he can maneuver his church exactly like he wants them. So don't worry about who gets elected into the White House because Jesus is still in control. And remember this, Especially for you who claim to know Jesus, his mission is to build his church, not to build up a certain country. We focus on building up the kingdom of God, not a certain country. So let's get out and do our part in sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he claimed to be God. He said his mission was to build the church. But then you get down to verse 21, and you get the, 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 the really the foundation. What right does he have to build the church? His kingdom. It comes through his death and resurrection. Look at verse 21. He establishes this by his death and resurrection. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people. That he must be killed and on the third day he would rise again. You see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central teaching of Christianity. It's foreign to all other religions. We don't claim to serve a dead God. We claim to serve a risen Savior. In his death, Jesus took on sin. He took on the sins of the world. Now listen, are y'all paying attention? I feel like a fire hydrant this morning. It's like, whoa. Okay? In his death, Jesus took upon sin. The sin that you and I have. When he hung upon the cross, he became sin for you and me. In his death, the penalty that you and I deserve, the wrath of God, 
was poured out on Jesus. On the cross of Christ, on the cross at Calvary, you literally see the wrath of God and the mercy and the grace of God in one place. Well, how do you how does that happen? Because his wrath was satisfied when he poured out his wrath on Christ. But his mercy and grace is seen in the fact that he offers us a chance to be forgiven and be redeemed if we'll accept by faith the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. He took the penalty and offers us forgiveness and pardon at the same time. You think about it this way. Jesus was born on Christmas for the purpose of dying on Good Friday and conquering death on Easter Sunday Sunday morning. And in doing so, he extends to every man, woman, and living human being this offer of having our sins forgiven. But now I want you to catch this. It's an offer. You have to accept this offer. I heard J.D. Greer tell, tell this story. I had to look it up. to Not that I think he was lying. I just had to look it up for the details. George Wilson, 1829. George Wilson and his friends robbed a U.S. mail carrier. They were captured, tried. The judge sentenced both George Wilson and his friends to death by hanging for robbing the mail carrier. That wouldn't go over so well in our society, would it? So sentenced to death. His friend died by execution. George Wilson obviously had some very influential friends. They began to petition the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, for a full pardon for their friend, George Wilson. Before his execution date, President Andrew Jackson Jackson issued a full pardon to George Wilson. Hey, you're a free man. Your your crimes have been forgiven. But in one of the most strangest events, probably I don't know that it's ever happened again in the history of the United States of America, George Wilson refused his presidential pardon. He said, I don't want it. I did the crime. I'm guilty. I'm not taking this pardon. Well, that that left the legal system in a quandary. What do we do? This man has been given a full presidential pardon, but he has refused to accept it. So what do we do with this man? Well, the case made its way to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And here's what the Supreme Court decided. And I quote, The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. I think they got their their understanding from the Scriptures. It says it is a grant to him. It is, it, it is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. And then Chief Justice John Marshall wrote these words. A pardon is an act of grace, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to enforce it. That is the gospel right there. Jesus Christ offers every man, woman, boy, and girl a pardon from the throne of God. It is yours, but you have to take it and you have to accept it as he gives it to you. You can be forgiven, you can be redeemed, you can be restored into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, but you have to take the opportunity to accept this gift to you. And what you find in the middle of that is that there is a great spiritual war in the midst of that. It's re- we're reminded of that in verses 22 and 23. As Jesus begins to predict his 
tell his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection, Peter once again sticks his foot in his mouth. He began, can you imagine Peter rebuking Jesus Christ? You, you've just said, hey, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now you're about to rebuke the guy you just called God. And so he began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This man who had just made this great confession about who Jesus is, now Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan. Satan has, has somehow taken infiltration over your mind and causing you to think more about yourself than you are about the things of God. Spiritual warfare. I didn't point it out in verse 17. But when Peter made this great confession in verse 17, did you notice that Jesus said to him, Hey, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven did. Can I let you in on a little secret? You don't come to Jesus when you want to. You ever heard people say, Man, I'm going to get saved when I want to? No, you, no you're not. The Bible says that nobody comes to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws him. You don't come to save in faith in Jesus Christ unless the Father initiates that in your life. Peter, you didn't come to this on your own. My Father revealed this to you. And today, there are some of you in this room, you think you've got all the time in the world to get your life right with Jesus. And today, the Spirit of God is beginning to open up your eyes, and you begin, you're starting to think this in your mind. And you need to understand that today might be the last moment you have to trust in Jesus for your salvation. And there's a spiritual war raging in you right now. Satan's saying, nope, you've got all the time in the world. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. Today, if the Spirit of God is beckoning on your heart to come, then you need to come. Spiritual warfare. So what does putting our faith in Jesus look like? Right? And so Jesus is God. He died to establish the church. Uh, or the mission, he, he, his mission is to establish the church. He dies as the foundation of that. That's, that's the rightful claim. How do we respond to that, right? What does that look like? We surrender everything. You see what, you see what Jesus says in verse 24? And he told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, salvation is not, is not just you mentally agreeing that Jesus is God. It is, it is giving Jesus your everything. It is making him Lord of your life. C.S. Lewis, he, he, he said that we are not merely imperfect creatures in need of improvement, but we are rebels who must lay down our arms. You see, you're not just a, a bad person who needs to be tweaked a little bit so that you can become a better person. No, you are a rebel against God. And the only way that you come back to Him is to lay down your arms and fully surrender to Him. Repentance. Repentance literally means to be to do an, uh, to do an about face. And so if I'm traveling this way, have y'all heard the word repentance before? Everybody in here, you heard the word repent, right? Okay, so repentance means when Jesus says... Um, in John, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and John speaks of that you've got to repent. So your repentance means that you're going this way, and you've got to turn around and go back this way. That, that's what repentance means. In C.S. Lewis, what, what he was saying, there were, we're not just people who need or in need of improvement. We're rebels who need to lay down our arms. He says repentance 
It isn't like um, repentance is just a description of what going back to God looks like. So in, in other words, he's not saying repentance is what you do to come back to God. Repentance is, is you going back to God. You, you see, you're going one way, you're living to please yourself, and then when you repent, you don't repent, then you go back to God. Repentance is you going back to Him. You're turning away from following yourself, and now you're going to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And that's what he's saying there. In Matthew 16, verse 24, if any man wants to be, my, to be my follower, he's got to deny himself. He's got to quit living for himself. Take up his cross and follow me as an instrument of death. Uh, you die to yourself. It's, it's, you, you go through, you experience the death and the humiliation that Christ did on the cross for you. And you, you surrender yourself. You, you're not worried about what others think you, but you're willing to follow him at all costs. You say, well, preacher, why would I be willing to do that? Why would I quit living for myself to live for Jesus? Let me give you two, two reasons and I'll close. First of all, you should do it because of who Jesus is. If Jesus really is God, and he says this is the way for you to be made right with God, then for heaven's sakes, you should do that. If this is Jesus, if this is God really saying the way that you can be forgiven, the way that you can be redeemed, the way that you can be restored is to come back this way, then you should do it. He offers you a pardon. He's offering you a chance of redemption. And you should take it. Now, there's a second reason. Verse 27 speaks of the return of Jesus Christ. You see it there? There's coming a day when the Son of Man, this divine Son of Man, this divine Jesus, He's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. It's the moment where he'll establish his, his kingdom. But now here's, here's the truth. Here's the, the good news. If you're willing to share in his death and resurrection, willing to die to yourself, repentance, coming back to him, the Bible says you also share in his glorification in this eternal kingdom. You'll not only share in his suffering and in his death, but you'll get to share in his, in his reward as well, in his resurrection life. I'll close with the lyrics of this song. Some of you will recognize it. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the life and ministry of our Savior and taking communion. But if you're here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Jesus is not your Savior. And the Spirit of God is knocking on your heart today. You're lost. Today, you, you need to get your heart right. We're going to stand and we're going to sing this invitation. Is it amazing, Grace? What, what page is that? Page 330. It's going to be in your hymnal. Is it going to be on the screen too, Wes? No, it's going to be in your hymnal, 330. As we stand and we sing this, this verse, this, this hymn, Today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, 
just want you to walk down the aisle, just get it right where you are as we stand, and you come take me by the hand and say, Pastor, today I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe he's, one, he's God. I believe he died for me. I believe he was resurrected, and today I'm willing to give him my everything. So I don't want to just say a prayer. Preacher, I want to give him my life. I want to surrender everything I have to King Jesus. Would you come? Would you stand with me? And we sing this great song. Would you come? Maybe your heart's not ready to take communion. You need to prepare yourself for that. You sing?